Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content will be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Ah, Central Park. There's nothing quite like it. Glad we finally made it here. Me too. Although, those skies don't look too welcoming. I hope it doesn't affect our flight tomorrow. Eh, we should be fine. So far, we're okay. We're getting out just before that hurricane's supposed to hit, so good timing on our part. I'll say. Do you hear that music? Yeah! It must be that big concert that's supposed to be in the park tomorrow. Ooh, they must be doing a sound check. Let's go check it out. How cool is it that we get to see the rehearsal and the sound check for one of the biggest concerts, if not the only concerts of the year? I mean, that set by the Killers just now was amazing. I can't wait to see who is next. I love a good rock show. Oh, how I know you do. I wish one of your favorite shows would be open. It's always a blast to go. A party each and every time. You don't have to tell me! I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the headbanging show, Rock of Ages. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. We know you don't need nothing but a good time, and that's what we have in store for you today as we head to the Sunset Strip for the show, Rock of Ages. Join us as we travel back to the rockin' 80s for this fan favorite, and as some might say, cult favorite show, which has graced several stages in and around the Great White Way. But first, let's travel back, maybe not as far, and set the scene for this rockin' show. Rock of Ages is a jukebox musical of 1980s glam rock. The earliest version of the musical premiered in L.A. in 2005. The full team was assembled at its off-Broadway home of the New World Stages and consisted of the following. The set was by Beowulf Borat, costumes by Gregory Gale, lights by Jason Lyons, sound design by Peter Halinski, projection design by Zachary Borove, Hair by Tom Watson, makeup by Angelina Avalon, book by Chris DiRenzo, directed by Kristen Hange, choreographed by Kelly Devine, orchestrations by David Gibbs and Ethan Pop. When the show was set to move to Broadway, the eventual rights were sold and set in motion for a movie to be made. The show is known for its humor as the performers, band included, frequently break the fourth wall. 
Chris DiRenzo was hired to write the script with the intent that he would direct the film. There was a bit of controversy over the film and its development. The studio fired DiRenzo, stating his inability to keep the production on budget. There is much talk elsewhere that they didn't like his version because he wanted to stay closer to the original musical that he had created. The film is, was extremely star-studded, but is considered a flop. At one point in time, Joel Hoekstra, former member of Night Ranger and current member of Whitesnake, played guitar for the show. The show saw a lot more commercial success than was expected. Choreographer Kelly Devine gave an interview saying that she believes that this is because the story, as well as the songs, are relatable to everyone. Plus, they have a kick-ass time. The show began its run at the Brooks Atkinson Theater on April 7, 2009. It would close temporarily on January 9, 2011, and move to the Helen Hayes Theater, where it would open on March 24th of that year. The show would blow minds of audiences on Broadway for 2,328 performances, closing on January 18th, 2015. Tied with the 1965 original production of Man of La Mancha, for the 31st longest-running show on Broadway. At this point, it has performed more shows than Hamilton, and that doesn't include its off-Broadway runs. The show was nominated that season for five Tony Awards. So let's get to the story. Lonnie Barnett, who serves as the show's narrator, sets up the story. In 1987, an aspiring rocker named Drew Bully works as a busboy in the Hollywood bar club called The Bourbon Room, owned by Dennis Dupree and assisted by Lonnie. He falls instantly for a girl, Sherry Christian, who just arrived from Paola, Kansas, hoping to make, a, make it big in acting. Drew convinces Dennis to hire Sherry as a waitress. A pair of German developers, Hertz Kilman and his son Franz, persuade the city's mayor to abandon the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle of the Sunset Strip and introduce clean living into the area, much to the anger of the city planner Regina. When Dennis learns that part of the plan involves demolishing the bourbon room, he believes the club can generate more money by having rock star Stacy Jacks and his band Arsenal who recently announced their breakup, performed their last show at the Bourbon. He calls Stacy and convinces him to play the band's last show in the club where it began. As Drew struggles to write new lyrics, Sherry urges him to go after his dreams. Regina begins protesting Hertz and Franz's redevelopment plan. Later, after arguing with her parents during a phone call, Sherry begins to discover feelings for Drew, who supports her dream. Also, Drew... Auditioning for Arsenal, finds the lyrics he has been searching for and realizes that they have come from his feelings for Sherry. After obtaining the opening slot for Arsenal, Drew invites Sherry to have a picnic in the hills overlooking Los Angeles. There, he mistakenly suggests that the two are merely friends to calm their nerves, disappointing them both and ruining the date. Stacy Jacks arrives at the Bourbon Room and gives an interview about his life. Sherry is immediately smitten with him and, believing she means nothing to Drew, has sex with Stacy in the men's room. 
While Stacy and Sherry are copulating, Drew opens for Stacy and Arsenal, not knowing a record producer is in the audience. After their tryst, Stacy tells Dennis to dismiss Sherry before the concert begins. His guitarist realizes what Stacy did and knocks him out. The record producer in the club was impressed with Drew's performance and suggests he takes over for Stacy. He then offers Drew a contract, which he accepts. Sherry seeks comfort from Drew after she is fired, but having seen her go into the men's room with Stacy, he dismisses her. In the midst of these events, Regina continues her protest. An upset and unemployed Sherry meets Justice Charlier, the owner of the nearby Venus Club, which Justice prefers to call a gentleman's club. She relates to Sherry's story, saying that many of the small-town girls hoping to hit it big in L.A. end up making a living as strippers. Grudgingly, Sherry accepts Justice's offer to work in her club. As the act closes, everyone is alone. Drew, as an upcoming rock star, Sherry, fending for herself as an exotic dancer, Regina, protesting the redevelopment, and Dennis, trying to save his club. <clears throat> Act two starts, and we see Hertz and Franz begin demolition on the Sunset Strip, alienating them from each other as Franz falls for Regina and sees the error of their ways. Dennis and Lonnie join the fight with little success. Drew's rocker image is upsetting the record producer. And Sherry is learning how things work at the Venus Club. When they meet on the street, Sherry is embarrassed about her job, and Drew is upset that his record company is attempting to reshape him into part of a hip-hop boy band, the Z Guys, as Joshy Z. They argue, and Sherry admits that she was crazy about Drew, but failed to make a move because he said they were friends. They part ways more troubled by these new revelations. A drunken Stacy arrives at the Venus Club and is pleased to see Sherry. After being forced to give him a lap dance, she beats him up while dancing. Drew arrives to admit his feelings for her, but becomes angry when he sees the two in a suggestive position and storms off. Justice later tells Drew that as soon as he left, Sherry punched Stacy in the jaw. Regina continues her protest against the destruction of the strip, but yields no success. She convinces Franz to stand up to his father if he does not believe in his father's vision. Franz admits that he has his own dream, namely to open a confectioner's store in Germany. He rebels against his father and admits his love for Regina. Meanwhile, Dennis and Lonnie, upset at the loss of the bourbon room, admit that they have feelings for each other. Sherry decides to leave the Venus Club after the scene with Drew, and Justice tells her that she had a similar experience with her first love. Everyone is in turmoil as they attempt to move on with their lives. Franz leaves for Germany, and Hertz begins to regret the hurtful way he treated his son. Regina arrives and explains to Hertz that Franz does not hate him. He simply wants his father to support his dream. Hertz decides to return the deed to the bourbon room to Dennis and invest in Franz's confectionery store. Drew, now a pizza delivery boy, realizes none of his dreams have come true. He is still not a rock star and Sherry is leaving on a midnight train. Lonnie arrives and breaks the fourth wall by explaining to Drew that his life is so miserable because they are all characters in a musical and that it is their book writer who made it so. He also reveals to Drew that he serves as the show's 
dramatic conjurer, and that if Drew wants a happy ending, it's up to him to get the girl. After hearing this, Drew realizes that he does not need fame to make him happy, only Sherry. He reaches her at the train station in time, and they realize that their love has survived all their trials and reconcile. In epilogue, the bourbon room is spared from demolition, and Stacy Jacks, now a washed-up has-been, who has been charged with statutory rape, flees to Uruguay. Franz opens his confectionery store in Germany and has a long-distance relationship with Regina, who becomes the new mayor of West Hollywood. Dennis passes away, leaving the bourbon room to Lonnie, and Sherry and Drew move to Glendale to start a family. Lonnie notes that on the strip, sometimes the dreams with which you enter are not always the dreams with which you leave, but they still rock. The The end. end. Let's let's just talk about the show. I mean, it was it was right. No, this show rocks. How do you feel about the show? Listen, this is my absolute favorite rock. uh, Sorry, jukebox musical. And that's saying something since you've seen. Actually, that really is because you've seen a lot of jukebox musicals. I've seen a lot of musicals, and this is definitely even in my. I mean, jukebox musicals. You've seen a lot of jukebox musicals over time. And uh, no, I agree with you. I absolutely love this show head to toe. Um, I, I think. I mean, it's just a good story. It has awesome music. It has all the best parts that we loved about the 80s they and made the jokes. It, they made an incredible show, an incredible Broadway show without taking themselves too seriously. This is exactly yes. how you basically go, I'm going to be ridiculous but be so good that this ridiculousness works. They well, were not trying to be high art in any form or fashion. In fact, they mocked everything about the theater. And like, they just I love, wanted to have a good time. Like, I love the line when um, uh, Lonnie's up there and he's like, well, now I'm no Andrew Lloyd Sondheim. And he just makes all these clever theater references that start off correct and then just go completely off. And I'm like, you know that's just... If you know anything about theater, that's just smart. That's the Easter eggs put in there to be like, yes, we are a good musical theater. Everything else is there to be crowd pleasing. And it was, it's brilliant. I love that the show kept real heart at the center, but still allowed the show to just be ham, ham it up. Right. I mean, it was camp to the utmost. It had a camp. good story. That's the word I've been looking for. Yeah. Camp. Yeah. Yes. Um. Well, and I just, I've been trying to find a copy of what the, um, what the book writer wrote about the show um, in the little leaflet that comes in the CD, but it's next to... CD. I know, a CD. It's that little thing that we used to listen to things Don't on. lecture me about that. I'm older <laughs> than you. Um, but I've been trying to find it, but basically in this letter, in the beginning of it, they write how they loved musical theater, and it's very, you know, not a lot of people think that heterosexual white men like musical theater. Um you know, and 
you know, so they wrote this this to kind of show like, hey, just because I like musical theater doesn't mean I'm gay, but also to kind of bring those family members in who are like, eh, I don't like musicals because they're too blah, blah, blah. It's um, like, no, 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 you can have a good time. And I'm going to get to this when we get to the impacts on society and theater, but uh, yeah, that's, yeah. I love that the characters really went on a journey and did develop throughout the duration of the show. This could have just oh, yeah. been like some other jukebox musicals where we're just focusing on the music but or or it's just like here is a i'm giving you a report on the history of so-and-so no this this is actually kind of like i want to say it's an original story in the sense of like i i don't know that there was this actually happened per se but also like anybody who grew up in the 80s or you know a lot about the 80s like this is your typical 80s kind of story Mm-hmm. Well, and one thing that I love about this is, um, and we've talked about it before in our jukebox musicals, is that when the songs happen because there's no other way to show the emotion. When they write that's a story it, around the songs versus writing the songs around the story. Is that what you're going after? The musicals so, work better when they write the story when they when they have a story and they put the songs and the in songs versus picking the, story. the songs and then trying to write a story around it. Yes, you you <laughs> let the songs support the story, right? And they happen because they're right yes, for the moment, yes. not because we're like, oh hey, we really, really want like this, this song. song. Yeah, because yeah. <clears throat> that you can tell when those jukebox musicals happen, and you're like. Why in the hell are we singing this song? This makes no sense. Right, or the songs that have to be in chronological order no matter what. And it makes no sense to the scene. And it's like, well, this show isn't high art at all. You're not doing linear or nonlinear storytelling. I just don't... It's disconnect. And Right, we put the song there because the moment called for this song. I might as well go home and listen to the greatest hits of whoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, this show's humor is right up Beyond my alley. Beyond good. It was so good. The jokes never got old, no matter how many times we saw it. On a side note, can I just say this? Every time I see the show, I have the biggest craving for Arby's. Yeah. They oh, do a my good God. Job of that. Well, like, and the show pokes fun at itself. It doesn't take itself too seriously, which is what I love. You can't like, when take yourself Lonnie seriously. and Dennis are running across the stage with their underwear. And, I, you yeah. Know, it's just like, you know, this show is just. Fun. It's how can we be absurd and raucous, just raucous enough that we're. I, the way I look at it is, how can we be raucous? Well, and roll? I, it's it's more raucous than um, uh, network, basic like network TV like ABC, CBS, NBC. Like they're gonna be more raucous than what you'll see on that. Closer to like cable, like on TBS or Comedy Central, but not quite chaotic and like out there like adult swim not quite like at the late night thing so it's right in that sweet spot of comedy where we push the envelope and the taste of everyone but it's not to the point where it's like "Mm, this is either too dark or just too out there that i don't get it it we're making fart jokes and poop jokes and sex jokes and things like that things that you probably wouldn't see in prime time on your nbc station and that but also the best way to put it is like darker fox humor. The animation yeah, I mean, humor. And it's is, in the best way possible. This is basically like what any, you know, I mean, my parents grew up in the 80s. Like they were, you know, coming of age in the 80s. And so that's really all I think about is just, you know, this was just 
what you and your friends would be doing, making fun of each other and being stupid. Uh, well, yeah, it's like re- retelling. And what I love is it's it's a retelling of a story. So I, one of the things I remember that I love the most is when they're do when when Lonnie's doing the epilogue and he's recounting retelling about what everyone's doing. Um, and everyone's out there, you know, they're singing "Don't Stop Believing," right? Um, and it gets to uh, Dennis and he goes, "Dennis left us two years ago," and Dennis is like. What? <laughs> and like Lonnie looks at him and goes, yeah, man, you died. And Dennis is like, wait, no, no. And then like the lights <laughs> like cue him and he's like, and he's trying to like take things and you know, <laughs> and it's, it's amazing. It's, and I'm like, that's exactly how, if you were like a bunch of friends gathered around a campfire retelling like the greatest story ever told, that's exactly how it happened where it's like, wait, I died. I don't remember that part, <clears throat> you know? You don't see that in a lot of shows successfully. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing is to recreate it mm-hmm. over and over and over. You know, the really complicated thing about Broadway theater or theater in general is everything has to be genuine and unique. Like you're doing it for the first time. But I mean, you could be doing it for the you know 5,000th time. But it still has to be like that first time for that audience. And I felt like every time we saw it, it was the first time. It felt fresh. It felt new. It felt... The show was always a party, mm-hmm. you know? Some fun... Uh, real quick, before we kind of break things down even the smaller stuff, um, some fun, interesting things about this show... Well, so um, Def Leppard originally declined any rights to their music, even though, you know, they're the ones who wrote Rock of Ages, the song. Which is ironic, but yeah. Right. Um, but they they declined any of their rights to their music to be used because um, in an interview I was reading, um, the majority of their existence was trying to stand on their own, be more like Iron Maiden, because everyone just kind of assumed they were part of this, like, you know, glam rock where they were just, you know, followers just kind of listened to it. And they're like, no, we want to be our own thing. Um, and so being included in a story that was about everyone prancing around Sunset Boulevard felt like they'd be giving up on everything they stood against. Um, you know, so it just really felt like it was going against their brand. But then after seeing the success and um, the talk of the film version, um, they allowed their music to be added in. <clears throat> um, now, it should be noted real quick. We're going to put this in here. Hope and I have never seen the film. And I that's ref- fine. I refuse to see the film. We, the one. film came out and everyone in our in our, in our our community and our friends and everything said it was absolutely horrible. And if you worked on the film, I mean, my family kind of liked it. Kudos to you for working on the film. But everybody I know said it was awful, especially compared to the musical. And being huge fans of the musical, I was like, well, I don't want that to tarnish my experience. So I'm good. I've seen the musical, and that's what I need to see. I don't need to see short little Tom Cruise trying to be something he's not. So we've never seen the movie. So movie comes along, and Def Leppard changes their mind. Which is fine. It's great that people can change their minds. but And then the 10th anniversary production happens. And they altered, um, <clears throat> they altered the show. Yeah, they changed the uh, Venus Club scene with the strippers. Yes. Before I get into that, I want to make just a little... No, No, you should keep going. You should keep going. We'll come back to that. Okay. Well, so they altered the show. And in the moment, um, because when they were first coming up with the show, the the 
uh, director, the choreographer, the book writer, everyone wanted the song that Sherry sings at the top, or that everyone sings at the top of um, Act 2 to be Pour Some Sugar on Love. Um, that's just the song they wanted. That was the feeling they had. And <clears throat> when they couldn't get the rights, they did Any Way You Want It mixed with uh, I Wanna Rock reprise. And I love the show just the way it is with that because there's such good meaning behind it. There is such um, impact on the scene because it's any way you want it, that's the way you need it. And it really talks about this idea that, you know, we're working in a strip club and I'm here to please you and you're here to please me and any way I have to get what I want, I'm going to go well, for it. I but to change it to pour some sugar on me or love or whatever it is it completely altered the the scene it made it more about the dancing and about the like it didn't help progress the story anymore they kept the i want to rock in there they just changed any way you want it to pour some sugar on exactly and they didn't flow as well either no. together and the thing is is you had two songs previously any way you want it and i want to rock that had similar tones similar energy right but they had different there was different verbiage or goals. So any way you want it with the strippers was this. I want to get out of here. I want to rise yeah, above well, this. Well, no, no. It was it was depressing and like uh, it was a little darker. You know, they they did not like the job they wanted and they had to do what they had to do to survive. Where I want to rock was Wolfgang von Colt. Colt. And he was just kind of showing his ambition. And I want to do this and that. I don't want to be doing this. They both didn't want to be doing what they were doing. But one had more optimism than the other. I think what it boils down to is any way you want it puts the power in the uh, dancers, in the <clears throat> dancer's hands to say, any way you want it, I'm telling you, any way you want it, that's the way you need it. To do pour some sugar on love basically says... Oh, you see me as an object. I'm gonna let you objectify me. I don't know about that. I think that's how I, feel. I see. I think any way you want it is more acknowledge. I think I think the dancers don't have any power. Any way you want it, that's the way you need it. Any way you want it, the customer. Any way they want it, not any way the dancer wants it. Any way the customer wants it, that's the way you need it. Not the way any way I want it. That's the way you. But they're giving them that permission. I because of circumstance. Well, yeah, but better that than to. Well, I guess objectify me. Pour some sugar on love. Well, no, no. I, I'm not defending the change. I'm just saying I think any way you want it is more of a... There's more plot and substance behind it yes. in context of the show. And I just think it balances out I Want to Rock a lot better because it's like dark to light. They're both wanting to get out of the situation that they're in, but one is more optimistic than the other. And when they change it to pour some sugar on... Isn't it pour some sugar on me? I'm pretty sure it's pour some sugar on love. When they pour, change it to pour some sugar, um, it yeah, it was just kind of like, okay, so you're kind of skanky and you just want to be a rocker. Yeah, it this took, doesn't. Uh, it didn't. It didn't gel for me. I was like, I don't think you guys need this. We just changed it. I felt like the change. Right, because oh, we got the rights. Let's change it. Because that's how they did it in the movie. Yeah. And it just didn't. Yeah, I didn't like it. Plus, the orchestration mashup of I want to uh, any way you want it, and I want to rock is beautiful. Because never in a million years would I think that those two songs go together. Yes. But when I hear them together, I can only like that's all I can hear, and it sounds like a match made in heaven. Yes. There's one more fun fact about this, which was really, really cool. So now if you buy the album, you get, um, when the album starts, you, kinda, you get the intro there. But 
it's obviously different than what you get in the theater. And the pre-show announcement is done by... David Co- Cloverdale. Um, sorry. Ooh, David David, Co- Co- David Coverdale. Wow, I can't talk. David Coverdale, who's the uh, lead singer of Whitesnake. And it's just absolutely amazing. And they poke... Here's the thing. Many shows just do this professional, like, welcome to the Gershwin Theater and this production of Wicked. And they give the pre-show, you know, please turn off your phones, da 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 blah, 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 blah. Go team. The album was the first one I remember listening to where it was, like, actually hilarious. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it acknowledged that you were listening to an album. And then when you were at the show, they had fun with it where they were like, you know, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Rock of Ages. Please put away your cell phones and take out that Bluetooth thing in your ear. Come on, man. You look like a douche. Right. Also, please refrain from flash photography unless you are an incredibly hot woman and are willing to show your boobs. And please note the nearest exit in case there's a fire. And please refrain from shouting out... Singing singing, uh, Death Leopard's Pyromania. But we we couldn't get the rights to it. And now... We couldn't get the rights to any of their music. Yeah, and now enjoy your faces being melted off as we enjoy Rock of Ages. And I was like, this is hilarious! Like... Everyone knows the pre-show announcement, and I mean, it's like the, 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 you know, the, what is it called? The safety video on an airplane, mm-hmm. and you're supposed to pay attention. I feel like I've flown so much that I can literally do word for word the Delta welcome safety video kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone knows the theater pre-show announcement, and these guys are like, okay, so you already know you can't be on your phone, you can't take pictures, you need to know where the exit is, unwrap, who cares about unwrapping your candies and that, we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. But let's just have fun with it because if we already all know the rules, you're not going to listen. Let's give you something to listen to. And I found myself actually listening and I thought it was so I'm much cheering. fun. cheering. Like I've never cheered. For a pre-show announcement. <laughs> yeah. The next time I heard a fun pre-show announcement, it wasn't until Sarah Bareilles did the waitress one. Mm-hmm. Well, there there has been a history of fun pre-show announcements. I mean, you have uh, the Frogs, which has an entire song for their pre-show announcement. Which, but if, very few shows do something fun. They're mostly like, knock it off, here we go. Exactly. And some shows, like, you know, that is that is the tone. I don't know that Les Mis could come out, you know, yeah. we're going to arrest you and put you in jail. But it was perfect for Rock of Ages. And yeah. it didn't hit the same when they updated it for the 10th anniversary show. Yeah, because you didn't have the Def Leppard line. That was the thing that was missing. Mm-hmm. But it set the tone. Mm-hmm. So let's break things down even further because, you know, we haven't talked enough about it. So let's breeze through this real quickly. I want to start with the set <clears throat> because... <clears throat> so it's what's funny about the evolution of the show is it started on a on a, obviously on Broadway on a, on a larger stage Brooks Atkinson Theater then it moved to the smallest theater on Broadway which was the Helen Hayes smallest mm-hmm. stage and then it moved to an even smaller stage at the New World stages the set didn't change it just it, it adjusted to the size but it didn't change mm-hmm. and that was really interesting so as they moved to these different spaces they obviously had to adjust the set and i thought they did it brilliantly because this set is absolutely amazing yeah. it, it had the dive rock bar fill that just came off the stage and out into the mm-hmm. audience but you had let the you have all, signs yeah it had alternative like you could go places within the set but still feel like 
everything centered around the bourbon room. Right. And what I loved is like the chandeliers and the sconces and all the like the fixtures had, had bras and it, panties and beer bottles stuck on them. I mean, total like I, I would have loved like to see. It looked like rockers trashed the place. Exactly. Like it was like no, there's no respect for this theater. It's like this is the most you know, profound and, and, and historical theater of the world. And, like, there's one guy whose job is to be like, how many bras and underwear can I get up on that chandelier? <laughs> you know, and it's like, this is amazing. But, <clears throat> yeah, it just, you walked in and they used hazers to create that layer of smoke. Mm-hmm. And it just, it felt like a great 80s dive bar. And all the signs were of the time, too, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. So it had a, it was not PC quite yet. So you still had the scantily clad women Nudes. and all that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was great. And um, the bartenders in the theater were first for me. And what I mean by that is there were actual bartenders out in the audience taking orders. Not both- even taking orders. They had, like, the... the, the- well, yeah, they, they had they, well the, the guys out there with like in the the like the vendors like in a bell game. All they had was beer and Jello shots. Yeah, and I thought that was you know of course the theater were oh we're a little bit more etiquette and hoity hoity you know we're gonna go get our fourteen dollar wine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this like guy's nah, here's a pop spoon ribbon. Yeah, beer <laughs> Jello shots, and I was like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. Um, the use of the video screen in the back was fantastic because see the stage wasn't all that deep. Mm-hmm. So you had to create movement and depth and visual space and everything. And they use this. Okay, so this is like weird to say, but this is like kind of like the dawning of massive use of projections. So driving through the city to go to the L.A. Hills Seeing or running. Sign. Yeah, and, or <laughs> running to go get to the midnight train or things like that. They use the, those, the projections and the screen behind them to really create that. And that... That made the stage feel much more energetic or bigger than it was. Right. And they also had like that music video vibe where when Stacey Jacks yes. is in his dressing room with all of his girls and Well, even just And they're just general, backstage. It felt very MTV ish. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the band was always up there on the stage. Yeah. Like and the, they, on the bar stage. That's where the, the pit was. They weren't in the pit. So they're right in front of the screen. So it, There's it, a sign that says, do not feed the drummer. Yeah. And they like interact with the characters occasionally. Like they were the guitarist the does punch, you know, Stacey Jacks. Yeah. They were as much a part. And they came out and signed playbills and everything afterwards. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's much a part of the show as the actors. Um, though it was a small and simple set. Um, especially as it moved to the haze and the New World Sages, it made use of the space very efficiently and clever um, with, like, walls that would collapse in a different space or, like, the, you know, things would pull out. Like, the bathroom would just, like, pull out from the wall mm-hmm. or, like, a wall would flip open and we'd be, you know, this would be... Um, the office. Yeah, or Venus's mayor. room or mm-hmm. something like that. There's Every- one curtain in the entire show that's that mylar... Curtain for, the, for, for the, the, uh, the showgirls. Yeah, yeah, for the I can't think of the 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 room, Venus Delight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but everything else, like it's just wall swing. Every every inch of that stage is a utilized space, which I think is just absolutely fantastic. You know, a lot of shows will fly in different set pieces and that, and I was like, no, there there was one. The whole set it looked like a, a play set because it didn't. The set didn't move. Like, giant pieces didn't track. Just walls open and whatnot, and that was about it. It was kind of like Avenue Q's set. Yeah, that's exactly it. 
Um, going right along with set with the lights, I, it was a rock show. It was definitely just like bright lights, flashes where you wanted them. Um, I mean, in my mind, there were pyrotechnics, but I don't. I think, think there were. There might have been one or two. I but think when I was at the Brooks Atkins, I think there might have been, but I don't, I don't think... remember. But the lighting made me feel like it was there. I remember it was like once the show started and they hit the first chord of. Um, just like living in paradise. I don't think that's the right song. No. But the first chord they hit, and all the white lights that start up, and they just come down right over the audience, and then they start spinning when the guitarist comes over the fan, and he's doing the lick, and the lights are just spinning over the audience, and I'm like, yeah, I felt like I was at. I felt like I was at the Poison concert I went to when I was 17. Ah, those were the days. But yeah, no, it just it 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 felt like a full on rock show. Like you felt like, and and the lighting did that. Mm-hmm. You you were just it did its job and like instructing you where to look and everything. But I was like, dude, this is just a rock show. 100%. This must have been fun for them. And I love the incorporation of the lights with the projections too. Yes. Because again, this wasn't like your. Like nowadays projections, I guess, where um, it, I don't know how to put it, like they can be, the projections can be manipulated to blend in with the lights. I felt like these were more like TV screens in the back. So it was like, you're going to have to deal with that glow from the TVs and incorporate that with your lighting. lighting. And it was mm-hmm. brilliant in that way. Um, and I also thought, the, it should be noted that I thought the lighting was really good, especially in those intimate moments, like in the LA Hills. Like when they meet on the street. Like, like when we have the... Every rose has I'm in a heart in my heart. And every mm-hmm. rose has... A, yeah, like all of those were just... It was just enough light that it created... It changed that mood for us. I mean, the music obviously did it, but you really it gave you that moment to stop and... Mm. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't mention... Costumes! Oh my gosh! The 80s, baby! This is... So, um... I absolutely adore the costumes, 100%. Um, these are some of my favorite costumes. And honestly, Gregory Gale, who I've Do you gotten... want to take a minute to talk about Gregory Gale? Oh my gosh, listen. I've gotten the pleasure to work with Gregory Gale oh, a Gregory. couple of different times while he came to do productions at Pioneer Theater. And his costumes are some of my favorite creations I have ever seen in my life. It's true. And it's just because I just love his style. It's clean, it's colorful... But it's different, um, and I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, we saw, um, I mean, he did a production of Cowgirls that they had these beautiful fringe outfits that just still stick with me to this day. I love everything in Rock of Ages. Every single article of clothing is absolutely perfect, Um, and it's not someone trying to create an interpretation of 80s clothing. It is 80s clothing, but with a Broadway, like, gleam to it. Um, and, I mean, just if you ever get the opportunity to see any of his work, when he did, um, what was that thing we saw with Maraca? Uh, fairy Cakes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my the gosh. The costumes that was so for good. Fairy Cakes. Those wings. It was so good. Uh, he he's, is, he's brilliant. He's amazing. And he's a, he's a very... <laughs> he's a great person, He's too. a good person to be around. Great sense of humor. Um, Everything from hair band rock to punk to new wave look. You know, that Tiger Beat look. And even the neon pop invasion uh, when they did the exercise number, Hit Me With Your Best Shot. It was all there. All the elements of the 80s were represented. It, it had mm-hmm. gorgeous girls. <clears throat> it had the gorgeous girls. 
uh, from the epic music videos by like White Snake and Poison among them as well. Like all the waitresses look like they just came off of the hood of a car, you know, mm-hmm. misty of the night, you know, just like yeah, woo. And then we we would I, I have to say one of my favorite costume pieces of the entire show, Mitchell Jarvis who played Lonnie, his many many T-shirts. Yes. Can we just say, hooray, hooray for, for boobies. boobies. I mean, seriously, the difference. That's like, if you're thinking about an 80s shirt, you think of the tuxedo shirt, the tuxedo t-shirt, and hooray for boobies. Yes. You know, it's like, I'm formal, but I'm here to party. You Mm -hmm. know, like that, that, the many shirts that he wore, I was like, this is ridiculous. And I wanted to be like, where did you get this stuff? Where did you dig this stuff up from? The costumes were all on, poor, on point. There was the Madonna hair everywhere, the big bows and the glass. I mean, I everything. Mean the fried Haiti, the fried yeah. 80s, 80s hair, perm hair. Yep. Like, mm. Everything just hit on point, and I was just living my best life. I was like, yes, all of this, yes. Um, the direction. Okay, so we've got to hit this real quick. <clears throat> we've mentioned it that the show in the directing, it wasn't trying to be something it wasn't. Um, so the director didn't take everything too seriously, which I really appreciate. Like, the, if you tried to make this, like, too artsy and that, it well, and, would have I mean, failed on a, on a huge level. But he didn't. It was like... She. She, excuse me. Well, and that's the other thing I wanted to kind of point out. The director was a female. And in the 80s, it was known for its high objectification of women. And I feel like we were able to have that rock and roll, like, spirit without the aggressive oppressive objectification there was a sexualization of women without oppression oppression. there was the empowerment yes yes and that's what i appreciated about the director for the show yes and i love that they treated it like a legit piece of theater but more of a satirical musical satirizing the jukebox musical that's that's been the thought i've been trying to get to they knew it was a jukebox musical but up until this point i mean if you think about the jukebox musicals that have come along they were like yeah, we're, we're kind of tired of this. And it's like, I I feel like, it, again, it's like that group of friends sitting around smoking weed, drinking booze, and being like, I can write a jukebox musical. Listen to this idea. You know? <laughs> and it's kind of like, let me come up with the worst idea. And not that it's a bad idea, you know. And then all of a sudden they put it together and then they run with it. And, that, and then it's just like, how can we make fun of what we're doing? How can we laugh at ourselves and in turn laugh at our industry? that much mm-hmm. more not only hold up a mirror to society but then be like yes society society and then go aha industry look <laughs> what you're doing <laughs> you know because truly like there there have been some great jukebox musicals and then there have been some that it's like why did you why? do this we didn't need this what are you doing stop it go home um <clears throat> and another thing to point out is that it truly truly took us on a journey that the audience could get behind and allowed these characters to develop, which I think is really important because, again, this could have been a show that's all about the music and we could all have that, like, nostalgic trip. And the fluff. Yeah, but they were like, "Eh, we need to have a good story. We need to have a story that you're going to invest in and care about and these guys have to go on a journey and you, they've got to develop. Otherwise, the satire doesn't come through. None of this works. We're just another one of them. And it takes a director who understands that to make, to f- walk that fine line between fluff and worth, you know. Oh yeah. And the last thing we have to mention, because I think we've been skirting it for so long, 
You gotta talk about the music. Oh, God, yes. Now, I mean, we all love songs from the 80s. Like, Do we? We do. No, oh, okay. that's not up for debate. Because <laughs> who doesn't love rock songs from the 80s? I mean, you know, they're just, there are things that are, at least for me, they, they sound like home. They sound like my childhood. They sound you like know. your mom and dad. Exactly. I can vouch for these things. Exactly. I know your mom listens to this, and she probably just laughed at that. Right. Uh, hey, shout out to mom. I know you're hey, listening. Hey, mom. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? Like, these songs are icons. And I remember growing up listening to my mom tell me stories about, I remember I was here when I first heard this song. Or mm-hmm. this song, like, Round and Round by Rat. My mom tells me about... Um, Going roller skating to that I song. I remember when, and, when they first got satellite radio, we were camping and we were listening to the, the Hairband Nation. Mm-hmm. And your mom and dad, we were just sitting around the campfire. They're like, "Yeah, do you remember this song?" <laughs> and we would. We, what was it? There was that one bar, and this song came on, and, da, 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 and I'm like, "Write it down, <laughs> write it down, musical right. idea." And so these songs already have like a special place in most people nowadays. You know, just because that's where we're at in life. You know, that's where society has gotten. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone has been touched somehow by this music, whether that be good or bad. Hey, now. Um, you know, but to be able to take this music and adjust it slightly in a way that actually people will like mm-hmm. is a stroke of brilliance because it's like you can't take a Picasso, alter it, and be like, hey, yeah, you like it, right? You know what I mean? Like, for the fact that they were able to take these beloved pieces of music and alter them just slightly to be able to serve their purpose in the show was brilliant. Plus, the mashups that happen. Like, I'm trying to remember which one is my favorite because there's so many of them. Um, but, uh, I mean, Hard in My Heart comes into mind and I can't remember what other song goes with it. Ah! But there are um, so many good mashups. Uh, hold on, little girl. Tell me what he's done to you. Stand up, little girl. A broken heart can't be that bad if it's true. Okay, we could just keep singing the song, but I'm going to Google it. I know that there's also More Than Words and Heaven. Heaven Yes, Heaven and More Than Words is just a beautiful... Because that's the one where uh, Wolfgang finds his voice. Uh Uh, We're not going to take it and... um, um, oh, no, what's... we're not going to take it, I think, does it on its own. No, no, there's there's a mashup between the protesters and the rock concert. Mm, I don't remember. Oh, but we have, we built this city and too much time on too my hands. Too much time on your hands, yeah. But the point is, is there's all these great mashups and these orchestrations that are just absolutely brilliant. That's right, friends. Before Owl City came around, along, and <laughs> I mean, the, seriously, to, to take these epic songs and mash them up and make them into even greater songs was amazing. And the way that they use these songs, like we've mentioned, to tell the story rather than build the story around the hits was great because there's so many great hits from the 80s in this in this era of music. Um, and, you know, to just pluck a few out to be like, this is what I need for this moment, rather than be like, look, there's 90 songs out there and we're going to put them all in the show. No, 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 no. They were smart. Because, well, I mean, I can think of a bunch of songs they could have put in. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm like, why didn't they include, why didn't they include Seal of the Night? Right. It doesn't fit in the story. Oh, okay. Exactly. Or the fact that they're able to connect and link these songs. Because one thing that makes a good musical is having themes. Um, 
And one thing I really want to talk about is this is the first time in a podcast that we, or in an episode that we've done where we mention we, orchestration. Yeah, and because it's really important at a show like this. Well, and orchestrators are important, and I will say for me, young naive hope, like we've talked about, didn't realize how important orchestrators were until this moment because I always thought, oh, well, the person who wrote it did all the original orchestrations, and I've come to realize, oh no. No, they didn't. That person comes up with the ideas and maybe a loose structure, but then the orchestrator is the one who comes in and really puts the flourish and the finishing touches on it and really ties everything together. And especially when you have a show like this where there is no, you know, like composer because the songs are composed by a bunch of different people. The orchestrator is the one who finds the keys, who finds the the tie-ins, who finds the, you know, the, the... alto harmony that can go with the soprano harmony and even if they're in different songs they can put those together because of their brilliance well you notice orchestrators more a lot with revivals because they're the ones that'll help update and modernize the music mm-hmm. if you've ever known like a lot of revivals don't sound dated Correct. but if you listen to like the original Oklahoma or hair or something you're like yeah that sounds like that time period and it's like well because the orchestrator has updated the arrangements and stuff to make that sound sound modern some arrangements th- different times in history had a different sound maybe like the 70s were very bass heavy and we might be a different way of sounding they also are the ones that if a scene needs more music for a quick change or something like that they'll add orchestrations in to help assist that Mm -hmm. based on that. Well, and it's even like thinking about something as iconic as even like Phantom of the Opera. You listen to Phantom of the Opera in the theater and it sounds like 1970s, 1980s, very synth heavy. Mm -hmm. But then you listen to the uh, movie and same music, but it just has this like punch that's slightly different that sounds more updated Mm -hmm. and that's the orchestrator well and like i mean the biggest thing i can say is if you ever get to see a show um and then you get to see the revival of it it will sound different to you it'll sound there will be something different but it doesn't I, i if that makes any sense. And like, for instance, I did hear like Rock of Ages sound a little bit different when we saw the revival, the 10th anniversary revival. I'm trying to think if we've ever seen a show perform and then seen the revival shortly after. And the only thing I can think of is Les Mis, but I can't remember real clearly that. I mean, but like, for instance, I saw The Music Man. I saw your guys' first audience. That music didn't sound like it was from... What, the 60s, the 50s? No, yeah, no, 50s. It, it, it sounded... sounds like it could have been written today. And that's just... And it's, it is it is a balance of orchestrations and sound design, but you know. But orchestrators are really important in finding that sweet spot and making sure that that is communicated to the audience. The show has had several notable cast members, including Constantine Morales, Amy Spanger, Kate Rockwell... Carrie Butler, Mitchell Jarvis, Adam Dassenheiser, Danheiser, Danheiser, <laughs> Nick Cordello, R.I.P. Yes, D. Snyder and Wesley Taylor.
So let's now talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history. So start with theatrical impact. I think this is the best jukebox musical ever. I would definitely call it one of the best, absolutely. It brought to the stage the music of the 80s. And I've been racking my brain. Is there another musical out there that has brought the music of the 80s? And I honestly can't think of one. I mean, On Your Feet? No, no. More oh, 90s. Okay, I guess you're right. But like just the 80s. It brought another kind of rock and roll to the stage. I can't think of another... Glam no. rock kind of... No, no. And it brought a story from the 80s that hadn't been told yet. If that makes any sense. We hadn't seen that 80s love story from L.A. told on stage like that before. We hadn't... <clears throat> excuse me. That story hadn't been put on stage yet. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I also... Um, you know, when it was at the uh, Brooks Atkinson Theater, um, when the ushers walked around and they sold drinks like beer and jello shots um, during a few of the numbers... Um, they received a lot of criticism for that that action, saying that it was lowering the standards of Broadway. Um, but, like, everyone was like, why? Why would you think that? And Because some people took it as a serious, like, oh, so they're going to start serving things during the show now? And it was like, well, it made sense for their show. They really mm-hmm. made the entire thing part of the experience. Right. And going on a social impact, um, it made for an incredible night out. Oh, yeah. It brought a whole new audience to the theater. It really did. Now, it wasn't just for those interested in art, but for the blue jean wearing, head bobbing, mullet growing crowd as well. I mean, I feel like every time we went, especially when it was at the Helen Hayes Theater, and I can say this because I don't think we have any listeners there right now, but I feel like the entire state of New Jersey was at every show we saw. (laughs) Every Sunday right. night when we came to the show at the Helen Hayes Theater, it felt like the entire state of New Jersey had come up for a night out to go see Rock of Ages, and they had an incredible time. And I was like, yeah, that's how the theater should be. You should be coming out to have a good time. And for me, see, this is the thing. Anytime I met someone and they're like, I'm not really a theater person or I'm not really into musicals, I've always been like, no, that kind of person doesn't exist. You just haven't seen the right show yet. Yeah, you haven't found the right show for you. Yeah, you 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 hear musicals or theater and you immediately think like Shakespeare or The Sound of Music or, or something. Mamma Mia. Yeah, and I'm like, you know what? That stuff isn't for everyone. Right, I mean, the... listen, and even in the theater community, there's stuff that we, we don't, don't like. We don't like Mamma yeah. Mia. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, like... but you know, <laughs> and so I'm like, well, what do you like? And almost nine times out of ten, when I tell them about Rock of Ages... They're like, oh, wait a minute, that sounds cool. And I'm like, yeah, don't tell me you're not a musical person. I guarantee you would have been there more than once. You would have gone and seen it. You would have come and brought your friends. You would have brought your family. You would have brought everyone to come see the show and would have had a good time. Oh, yeah. Well, this is one of the, like, when I saw this show for the first time, I was like, oh, my God, my dad needs to see this. Because, like, my dad is an amazing man, and he has done a lot of things that I know aren't up his alley, like watching orchestra concerts, which I now realize as an adult was torturous to everyone involved. Um, (laughs) But, you know, coming to my orchestra concerts, going to my plays, and I knew they weren't his thing. And so to be able to see a show like Rock of Ages that combines his thing with my thing, for him to be able to gain that understanding as to why I love musical theater so much, um, was great to be able to have a show like this. Yeah. You know, 
So is the show relevant? Always. Yeah. Yeah. Look, right now. We don't need nothing but a good time. We need a party <laughs> and we need an escape. We need this good time back on Broadway. It was a good time then and it has been just as, it was just as good time now. Like, if that makes sense, you know, getting to see it again, it's still a good time. This show is also just as accessible for regional and community theaters as the material and music is very accessible and recognizable to those audiences. But I feel like a revival on Broadway, like, if we're interested in revitalizing Broadway and getting audiences in the theaters and just kind of providing that escape from the, the, the woe and the worry of the world, yeah, this is the show. This well, is the one that we need to just... And I feel Rock like, out, Rona. I feel like you know that's a <laughs> there good we go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise the money to put on Rock of Ages by rocking out Rona. Oh, oh my gosh, 2022. <laughs> you know, I definitely feel like this is a show I would like to see more communities put on. Um, and I know this show can be kind of scary for community theaters because it has strippers and sex and drugs and rock and roll and um, hair, big hair. But I feel like that's what makes it so great. And I feel like, you know, you're not doing this expecting it to be music, man. You're doing this to draw attention to the adults. And like, listen, we all love to do shows for the kids, but adults pay the money. Yeah, we want to be entertained too. And we want to, you know, get the adults to come and patron the theater and remind them that they can have a good time. Absolutely. we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. So we've seen the show six times. On Broadway, we saw it five times between 2010 and 2014. And then most recently, we saw the revival at New World Stages in 2019. One of my funniest fondest memories the first time we saw it i okay so first of all a little backstory real quick when if you if you ever get the chance to attend with me the broadway theater there is a dress code you do not show up in your flip-flops and billabong shorts and your your tank top no 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 you also don't need to come in your 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 tuxedo and top hat and that but you need to wear slacks and a collared shirt of some sort you need to get nice. It's the Broadway theater. Like, come on, we can do this. If and, and when people say, well, some people can't afford to dress up. Look, if you can afford the Broadway ticket, I'm sure you got a pair of long pants and a collared shirt. Trust me. But I digress. So I show up, uh, well, we both showed up dressed for the Broadway theater. I had slacks and a button-up shirt. And it was the first time, like, I showed up and I'm looking around and I was like, oh. See, I'm I, so overdressed. I thought ahead. I chose a cute little, like, wrap pencil skirt type thing that had, like, a zebra print that definitely... You fit in just fine. Yeah. Even though, like, you were dressed for the theater, I was, I'm walking around in khakis and this, like, plaid... Well, not plaid. It was, like, I don't know, like the... Like a checker. Checker. Kind, well, not checker, but, but just, yeah, like, big check shirt something. It looked nice, but I was, like... Man, I overdressed for this thing hard. 
<laughs> I just stuck out. I was like, I look like a square. Well, and I feel like this is uh, really what introduced us into starting to dress in theme for shows. Yes, I'm just being like, okay, maybe every show doesn't need to have... Jeans and a button-down. Or, you know, slacks. Or sorry, slacks yeah. and a button-down. And I just felt like I was going to go to the bar and you were going to be like, yeah, give me a whiskey. And for you, can I get a sparkling water, please? You know? <laughs> after that, I was like, jeans and a polo. And then after that, it was like... Yeah, I, I got this shirt here and <laughs> pair of jeans. It's, it's cool. I'm fine. You know, and I still kind of felt a little overdressed because I'm like, these are this is a good pair of jeans and still it's kind of a nice shirt. I feel like I should maybe be in ripped jeans. Or something. It's a concert, you know, but I was like, it's a theater. It's hollowed ground. Like, I'm so conflicted, you know. Um, but it was a party. We do jello shots. This is the first show that I got drunk at. I got progressively drunk, which totally enhanced the show. Mm -hmm. I don't normally, uh, I have a drink at a show. I don't get drunk. And I remember like the first time at the Hayes. <laughs> Those jello shots hit all at the same and time. And that bartender was just like, yeah, here, I'm just going to get rid of these. So why don't you guys just have a few? And I was like, yeah, why not? Yeah, like And that second act, shots. I was like, yeah, I feel great. Ooh, you could feel that jello shot unflurling in your stomach. <laughs> I remember when we saw the show at the Brooks Atkinson Theater. It was Father's Day. We were waiting outside for autographs. And we were waiting because we loved the character of Lonnie, who was played by Mitchell Jarvis. So we were waiting, we were waiting, we were waiting. And he finally came out. And he was really surprised that we were still hanging around for him. But he was really, really grateful. And he signed our playbills. And then he like chatted with us for like half an hour after that. And I was like, this is amazing. Right. I also remember... Um, we saw it at the Helen Hayes and the actress who plays Justice. Um, I kind of was going through, you know, some body positivity issues where I didn't say myself as beautiful. I had a hard time wearing certain dresses because I didn't like the way my body looked. And I wore um, this outfit again that was like this pencil skirt with like this halter zebra top that really showed off my you know, curves. goods, curves, curves. We'll go with curves. curves. Um, and I remember the whole time I just kind of felt, I felt really shy and I felt very self-conscious. And when she came out and we were getting autographs, she stopped and just told me how beautiful I looked and how, you know, confidence is the best thing a person can ever wear because when you look amazing, you feel amazing. Like when you feel amazing, you look amazing. Mm -hmm. And, um, because it all came up because I took a picture of her and Andrew together. And then she's like, well, do you want a picture? And I was like, oh, no, I don't I don't want a picture. And she's like, no, you're beautiful. You're hot. Let's get a picture. She and, was amazing. And it really just stuck with me. And that's what, also, you know, that interaction helped start me on my journey of um, body positivity for myself. Yay. Yeah. So thank you. Uh, and yeah, just meeting all the different casts was amazing. All of them were fabulous. And like we said, meeting the band, they mm -hmm. were amazing too. Um, I mean, I think we saw D. Snyder no, when he was no, Stacy no, Jacks. No, no. Did we not we, get to see we him? Did not, no. Dang no. it. I was really hoping that Trust happened, me, I but I had a lot of alcohol. D. Snyder. Um, and, you know, we've already mentioned, but I think it's a memorable and notable thing. This was your dad's first Broadway show, even though it was a tour. This is your dad's first Broadway show. Yeah. That is. It will not be your last. Now that his last, now that we live here, we will get him out here to New I York. I mean, he saw Monty Python. He saw, he saw Spam a lot. Uh, we will get him out here to see more. I'm sure he needs to come see your first Broadway show, The Music Man. <laughs> he needs another territory. Oh my gosh! Look, you're in for a lot of these jokes. It's just a great show, and we loved it. This is one of my favorite shows ever. 
As we usher our way back into our seats in the theater again, we look forward to seeing this show again. Seriously, we anybody out there, we really want to see this again. So please let me say you'll be able to catch Rock of Ages somewhere near me. Yeah. Like now. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Yellow Cop, Mize Darling, Loyalty Freak Music, Jazzar, and Billy Murray. <laughs>